I'm going to work through the first four verses here, and then in verse four, we're going to take off, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, you're going to be worn out. Um, <laughs> but seriously, I mean, if, if you're a note taker, just, I have to move fast. I generally don't cover the volume of scriptures that I'm going to cover this morning because it can be kind of overwhelming. But at the same time, the only way that I can draw a picture here is to cover the volume of scriptures that we're going to cover. So again, don't worry so much about taking them in. You can catch this online or do whatever. Uh, but I really want you guys to see some things that are just powerful. And so uh, back on verse one, it says, on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now John is certain to write Cana of Galilee. There was another Cana, and it was in Syria, Syria to the, so the southeast. Cana of Galilee was, oh, I don't know, six to nine miles, this, this is some debate, uh, sort of northwest of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, his hometown. And so remember they had been down at the, on the east side of the Jordan River, down below, actually below Jerusalem, and then he had said, I want to go to Galilee. They went up to Galilee, and they ended up going to this wedding in Cana. And it says the third day, this would be the third day after he called Andrew and John. Remember, we looked last time at him calling his first disciples, and Andrew and John were there, and so this would be three days after that. That probably would have been the Sabbath, or Shabbat. It would have been a Saturday, because this is Wednesday. Weddings in the in, in the first century, if the bride was a virgin, she was the Jewish tradition uh, determined that she would get married on a Wednesday. If it was a widow, she got married on a Thursday. So they had different days that were set apart. So this is probably Wednesday of the week. And that's why John is indicating what day it was, because he wants us to be sure that this is the day of the wedding itself. And so... Uh, in verse 2, it says, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So here's Mary, Jesus' mother, and, uh, and he and his disciples are invited also. Now, what happened there in the first century was the, uh, and we'll get into it more, but it, there was probably some, either a relation or at least a friendship or something going on to where Mary came uh, to this wedding, she had the authority. She ordered the, the servants to do whatever Jesus said. I mean, she had some authority here. She was probably helping out at least, if not in charge of some aspect of the wedding feast itself. Uh, and so we see here that this is either a close relationship. There's a lot of debate on that, and I'm not going to get into that. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, gee, it was John's wedding, and it was this, and it was that. And it's like, nobody knows. It doesn't say. And a good rule of thumb is where the scripture is silent, so we ought to be too. So uh, at any rate, the point is, uh, this is, it, it's, it's sort of family affair. And so Jesus and his disciples are invited as well. In verse three, they, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. When my wife and I were in Myanmar, Burma, uh, we were doing some mission work there in uh, northern Thailand and southern Myanmar. Uh, I, I preached at a church on a Sunday in, in Burma, and afterwards we were invited to lunch. And these are poor people. Um, and and you know, we were very graciously accepted. We got to this lunch, and these people had a feast 
spread on the table. And yeah, some of the stuff wasn't what Americans eat because they like to eat things like bugs. Um, or they, they had these whole fish that were deep fried it, with their guts inside and you started by eating the head. And I was like, oh, this is just not Sunday lunch. I mean, I, you know, the Black Bear Diner sounds really good right now. But <laughs> the point is these people would put out their entire cupboard of food. It would be absolutely horrifying for them to run, a f- run out of food. It would be socially inept. Uh, they would be socially frowned upon if you left there hungry. There's that hospital. And that was in the Far East. And in the Middle East, it was very much the same. That's the point. Is these people, when they, I mean, it's an agrarian society. Nobody, you know, is, you know, raking in the bucks here. They didn't have bucks then. But, you know, nobody's doing super well. I mean, there were probably wealthier people and, and poorer people, just like there is here. But at the same time, when they put on a feast, when they put on a wedding, everything went into it. I mean, it was a week-long party. Just as a side note, um, Jesus liked to go to parties. He never got drunk. He didn't, you know, do sinful things. Don't take that connotation of party. But I've known Christians that it's like, I I just want to say, Will you tell your brain to remind your face to smile? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it, it's just, a, I mean, this is, we are, of all people, are, should be joyous. I mean, what is the first fruit of the Spirit after love? Love manifesting as joy. Why does the Bible say the joy of the Lord is my strength? I mean, this is a joyous occasion. And Jesus went and he went all in. And he saw there was a problem, just like his mother did. However, his interesting response is what follows here uh, in chapter or in verse four. He says, "Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." Now we can look at that in our vernacular, "woman." Now, if I go to my wife, if I say, "Woman, give me some lunch," (laughs) I'm going to be hungry. But in their culture, in their culture, this was a sign of respect. It was like saying, my lady or madam, uh, you, you got to understand there's a, there's a breakdown and it's really hard to make this walk in English, but in their language, it was, it was actually a sign of respect. It was an elevating thing. And so he's saying to her, my lady, mother, what... He says, what does your concern have to do with me? In other words, and again, there's a lot of speculation. Mary had obviously had Jesus in their eyes out of wedlock or had gotten pregnant when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and Joseph put her away and actually protected her. He could have had her stoned back when the angel appeared and all of that. Uh, And yet, and we don't see Joseph here. There's a good chance he was probably already dead. Uh, we, you don't see him at all in the gospel narratives, uh, except for, you know, when Jesus was a boy and they went looking for him, found him at the temple and all that. But here, Jesus is saying, this is not your and my problem. However, I'm going to handle this. 
But what I found really interesting, you guys, is I studied this uh, starting several weeks back because uh, I like to work ahead. I just, I just like reading the Word. Uh, but as I started looking at this, I'm thinking, why on earth, in the middle of this wedding where Jesus' mom comes and tells him, hey, we're out of wine, does he say, my hour's not yet come? I mean, it just seems out of place in the text, doesn't it to you? I mean, it does to me. It seems out of, but it's not. It is so not out of context here. Um, What we do know, Jesus uses this term seven times in the Gospel of John. My hour is not yet come. And he does use the term, my hour has come. In John 17, there as he's praying in the garden, the, the great high priestly prayer where Jesus is appealing to the Father and talking about his disciples and talks about, uh, he prays for us. He says, for those who will believe, I pray, da, 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 da. And, and he says, this is the time. This is the hour. My hour has come. And it was, it was the time for him. Number one, he was, it was the time for him to be presented to Israel as Messiah which he did on the Mount of Olives as he wept over the city and prophesied against her because he knew she was going to reject him and prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that was carried out to the letter. But it was a time for him to be revealed as Messiah, for him to take the cup of suffering that he would take by going to the cross and also being the perfect man, that death would not be able to hold him, so he would resurrect from the dead, and then he would ascend. That whole series of events was when his hour would come. So when he says this, my hour has not yet come, I still don't understand how that connects to this wedding. And, and I found myself thinking, Lord, and I, you know, I'm reading a bunch of commentaries and nobody's talking about this. It's like, I don't understand. And I want to take off here And I want to look at the Jewish wedding of the first century. We'll spend the rest of our time doing that. I'm going to go fast because there's a lot of ground to cover. My prayer is that you will have a better understanding of why Jesus said this by the time we're finished. And that a great deal of passages of Scripture may be unlocked for you as they were for me beginning several years ago when I was standing looking out over the ancient ruins of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and and the Holy Spirit just opened my eyes to some things. Uh, That was sort of a launching point as I remembered back to that. Uh, And I'll share that in a little bit. But uh, I want to look at nine parallels with the first century wedding. And we do know some things about first century weddings. There are also a lot of these things came forward in Judaism because Christianity has its roots in Judaism. And I want to be careful here. There is some junk out there, spiritual junk food, that is pure heresy, where people compel others to live like first century Jews. Uh, it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement, I think, in some circles, or her Hebraic traditions and all this stuff. I, I, I know people are involved in that. I love them. And I also know that that's not what Jesus intended. This is not. I mean, he speaks so much against that in the book of Galatians. He says, let them be accursed if people try to compel you to live like a Jew as a Christian. However, 
Christianity does have its roots in Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. He was a good Jewish boy. And I don't know if he spoke like that, but, you know, he was, he was a Jewish man. He made you some soup. I cooked all day. What are you doing? Yeah. No, he didn't do it. But, <laughs> but the point is, is that it, it, the Jewish wedding and the wedding feast are all important in understanding our theology. The first thing I want to look at is the betrothal. Okay, what Jews did is they, when a father saw that it was time for his son to marry, he sent a servant to another village, usually to another village, to find a bride, uh, a wife for his son, and it was usually somebody his son had never met. The servant went with the best that his master could afford. He, he might have 10 coins of silver or gold that might even be intangible or not, you know, not monetary goods. It could be livestock. It could be any number of things, but it was essentially sort of a dowry or sort of a, uh, a, a down payment uh, to agree to arrange this marriage. Of course, we don't do that today, but that's how they did it back in those days. Sorry, the wreath was falling. <laughs> don't worry about it, Ed. <laughs> Anyway, uh, he made an offer. When he found a woman that he felt was a good match for his master's son, uh, he would make an offer to the woman's father. And, and if the father was impressed and he accepted the bridegroom's offering or the, the groom's father's offering, uh, he, he'd call for his daughter and give her the opportunity to say yes or no. And she usually said yes because it was kind of hard to find a husband under these terms in those days. You never knew when somebody was going to come wandering into town looking for a bride. And so she would be sort of pressed to say yes uh, because it wasn't real predictable. And in Genesis 24, we see this acted out when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. He, he says, you know, I don't want Isaac to marry some Canaanite woman. And I'm paraphrasing broadly, but it's what it says there. Uh, I don't want my son to be marrying some Canaanite, some foreigner, because he had been drawn by God to the land of Canaan, remember, and he's, he's there. Uh, and so he sends his servant back to Nahor, his hometown, to find a bride. And he finds Rebecca and uh, they're at the well and, and it, it's a great scene. I mean, I'd encourage you to read it. It's just a wonderful story. Uh, the family says yes and they spend the night and they start to balk a little bit and they ask Rebecca and she says yes. And so off she goes. So we see that this tradition of the Jews is, goes all the way back to Abraham. So the servant, then he would leave part of the agreed payment and go back with the news. And once the groom's father had approved the choice of the bride... So the servant's kind of running back and forth here. You guys remember doing that in school? He likes you. <laughs> she, she has a crush on you. No, it wasn't like that, but that just struck me. Um, but here, the guy's going back and forth. And, and so the bridegroom, he would then go to meet his bride-to-be uh, for the first time. And at this point, this would be the beginning of the betrothal. Now, there were two ceremonies here. There would be a, a betrothal ceremony, and they had rituals that they did uh, and, and customs that they observed in this betrothal. Uh, and so, and the betrothal would be a, anywhere from one year to two years, and nobody would know, and we'll see the day or the hour when the bridegroom would come, but the betrothal would begin. 
So the bridegroom, he would show up and begin this binding engagement. It had a, 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 a spiritual side or a tangible, a physical spiritual side, yes? Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's not your point. <laughs> Dangerous point. Um, no, I'm serious. I'm kidding. But um, So the betrothal here, it has two sides. There's this long engagement. The engagement starts, you are bound to that person. And then when the bridegroom comes, the actual marriage, the wedding takes place. That's what's taking place here in Cana of Galilee. This is after the betrothal and it's the day of the wedding or the time of the wedding. The feast is going to happen here. So anyway, uh, it, it, interesting, the betrothal was also, it was called the Erosene or the Kiddushin and, and that meant sanctification. It was a time now when the couple was set apart uh, for marriage at the end of the betrothal. Uh, and they were off the market at this point. That was a promise. Joseph, when he took Mary down to register for the census in Bethlehem, they were betrothed. They had not yet consummated the marriage, and that's why she was a virgin. And so you see a picture of that in what we're talking about here. And so, interesting, as we look in the New Testament, we see over and over and over again, and we're going to look at some of that this morning, that the church is called the bride of Christ. And as such, the bride has a bridegroom. And Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. So keep that in mind as we go through here. The second thing that we look at here is called the groom's promise or the tenaim. And it's the first time that the betrothed saw each other. The groom paid the bride price. He paid he, he, paid up. He, divvied, he paid the, the full amount. It was known as a mohar. And, and he declared in a loud voice, and this is in the town square, the whole town would be there to witness this, um, the price has been paid in full in front of the village. In 1 Corinthians 16, we see some of this language. Or, or 1 Corinthians 6, there is no 16. Um, he says, for you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, he's talking about, it's the concept of this tenaim, this promise here. Uh, the bride was very careful with the payment. She didn't want to lose the coins. They were going to be placed on a headpiece that she would wear, much like a, a, an engaged woman would wear an engagement ring that would show she's not yet married, but she's off the market. I hate to sound like that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, she's not available. She's not, she, she's spoken for. And she would wear this headpiece that would contain some of the coins that were from this bride price that had been paid for her. And interesting, in Luke 15, um, Luke talks there, he gives, it's one par it's three parables, but one parable. It's called the parable of the lost things. And it's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. The prodigal son is there. A wonderful passage. Oh, I could rabbit trail on that and just go for a month. But in the middle parable there, it's about a woman who loses a coin and she's frantic and she sweeps out her whole house. Those of you that know the story, you remember. This wasn't because she lost a quarter. <laughs> it was probably, I mean, you can infer from that by the level of, of upset that she had that she lost part of her bridal headpiece. And she was frantic to find that thing. Again, into interpretation, but it fits. The third thing we look at here is the covenant, the kitabah. Uh, and I, I might not be saying these words right because I don't really know how they are said. But the point is, there's a covenant here. Once the, bride, uh, the price had been paid by the bridegroom, a contract document or a kitabah, 
which was a covenant promise, was signed to record the agreed terms of the betrothal that the groom would provide for the needs of his future bride during the betrothal period. So he is going, he's actually entering into a binding agreement, a covenant. And that's what it is. When we look at our Bibles, we see Old Testament, New Testament. And I, I mentioned before, Testament, covenant, contract, same words. Okay, it's not our deal with God. It's his covenant with us. And it's binding. And he's very good at keeping it. <laughs> Sometimes we get out there. But the point is, is that this would be a contract that would govern, and it could be very detailed, that would govern this betrothal period and how things were going to happen, how things were going to take place. So, and it was designed to protect the bride more than the bridegroom. And once it was signed, the bridegroom would go out and declare with a loud voice, and again, part of the ceremony, it is finished, meaning it is paid in full. Uh, in the original language, to telestai. Ring a bell? So Jesus said from the cross, right before he gave up his spirit. He said, it is finished. It's paid in full. Before the bridegroom left for the betrothal waiting period, he would spend precious time with his bride-to-be. And, and there would be great joy. But there would also be a lot of questions. How are we going to earn a living? How are we going to get through the what how many children we, you know all of this stuff and if you remember back when you were engaging you were having those talks you know after you have the define the relationship talk um and you enter into this thing there's a lot of questions and there can be some stressful times well and what happened with jesus with his men was he was there but that as he began to say i i'm gonna have to go away they started to stress out Number four, the groom's promise to prepare a place for his bride. This is called the chupa. Once the bride price or mohar was paid and the covenant or kitaba was signed, there was a groom's speech of promise. This is a really special passage for me. Uh, we'll get to the passage in a minute. But when Stacy and I were in Israel a few years back, Standing there, as I mentioned earlier, on uh, sort of a, a platform just outside of, uh, still at the synagogue in Capernaum. And we'd stepped outside and we're looking out over the ruins of Capernaum. That's where Jesus relocated his ministry, remember, after they ran him out of Nazareth. And I looked down and there were all of these regular shaped patterns in these ruins. The ruins were probably as high as this table is here. And... and and you could see rooms. You could see how the house had been built. And I looked and got all these little square blocky things and delineating different rooms. And then I looked and there's this whole row of round ones. And I thought, that's odd. That's really odd. The, groom, or the, the, the groomsman would, or groom would say, I have to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you at my father's house. And it would have been the bridal chamber or the chupa. This tradition is kept even in our day. And the groom went back to his father's house to build an addition to the existing dwelling where he would receive his wife in after their betrothal when they actually had the marriage, the wedding. The bride would then say, don't go. This is all part of their tradition at that time a public ceremony that they're having for this betrothal. And she would say, don't go. And the groom would respond, it's better for you that I go, 
but I'll come back. And when she would ask, and he would say, I don't know, nor does my servant, only my father knows the day. In John 14, back there at the synagogue in Capernaum when I was there, I asked our guide, who was a, a very, very knowledgeable Messianic Jew, uh, head of the, the only Jewish kibbutz in Israel where we stayed. Uh, on, well, I stayed there on another trip with a bunch of pastors. Not, I didn't stay there that trip with my wife. But I said, what is this round bunch of deals? And he said, that was from the chippah. I said, explain. He said, what would happen back in the first century, and this is sort of what started this whole rabbit trail, was in the first century, when a man was betrothed, they, it would take some time. He would, after he found a suitable wife, he couldn't just invite her over to, and get married that moment because he had to go back and literally prepare a place for his bride. He had to do an addition to his father's house. And that row of pillars was probably an addition that was done at a different time than the original building. And this whole passage here in, in John 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, and that's a bad translation, many dwelling places. You know, it's not like southern mansions, you know, out on the plantation. No, in my father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Jesus is speaking the language of a wedding. He's speaking the language of a betrothal. He's speaking the language that they would have clearly, clearly understood. And as this truth came crashing in on me, I was just blown away. I was standing there, I was leaning on this rail, I'm looking at these ruins and with this addition that was just very plain to see and I realized something. It's not about the house. It's about who's inside. That the one who is our bridegroom has gone to prepare a place for you, for me. Beautiful truth, beautiful truth. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not, only, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, the angels being servants. At his father's house, the bridegroom prepared the chippah, the bride's chamber. And meanwhile, the bride had to be ready. While the groom was away, he sent a chaperone or a servant to keep an eye on her and to ensure that she'd be cared for and watchful for the return of her groom. And this alertness, alertness was manifested at night because usually the bridegroom would show up at midnight. He purposely didn't tell his bride-to-be when he was going to come. It was expected that she would be ready for her for her, her guy. This alertness, um, or I'm sorry, she had to have oil in her lamp and to have it burning all the time. The bride also had other virgins. She had friends that were virgins helping and serving her who, her who were also anticipating the wedding. 
And in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Number five, the wedding garment, the cattell. The wedding garment, it was a white robe. It looked kind of like a bathrobe. It was a garment worn at Passover. It was also worn by the groom at the wedding. The next thing we see here, number six, and we'll just kind of get through this quickly, the mikvah. A mikvah was a ceremonial bath. They're still used in Israel today. It It was used for ceremonial cleansing by the Jews. Now, there were certain... Uh, requirements for a mikvah. A mikvah had to have water flowing in and water flowing out. That's the only way that it could be considered, and Jesus used the term more than once, living water. Okay? When I was at the Sea of Galilee, I noticed there were no mikvahs. I asked and was told the Jordan River, the upper Jordan, flows into the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, the lower Jordan, flows out of the Sea of Galilee. There's no need for a mikvah on the Sea of Galilee because the whole lake, it's just like a big lake. It's about the third of the size of like Lake Tahoe. It's a big lake. Um, but the whole lake is considered living water because it has inflow and outflow. There's life. Contrasted to that, going on down the Jordan Rift to the Dead Sea, the reason why it's called the Dead Sea is there's inflow, but it's the lowest place on earth. There's no outflow. There's none. And there, there won't be until we're told that when Jesus comes back, when his foot ste- steps on the Mount of Olives and it splits the Mount of Olives and there's water that flows from the throne of God. And, and oh, I'd love to go into all that, but basically it'll flow down to the Dead Sea and it will replenish the sea with life. What a glorious time that'll be. Anyway, we see the work of the Spirit here who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Number five, um, or I'm sorry, number six of the mikvah, uh, the, it was a tradition of cleansing and introspection for the, the bride. On, on, uh, it was up, she could go up to four days before her wedding um, in, in, in modern times. And at that time, she would go to the mikvah because she didn't know when her groom was going to take her. But it was a time of reflection. It was a time where she would transition from being a single woman to being a married woman. It was a time that was a ceremonial cleansing. It was like her old life was now gone. And her new life ahead of her uh, was what remained. Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation and the old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. The seventh thing we see here is the bridegroom coming for his bride. This, this one gets me. The groomsmen would run ahead of the groom. They would sound the shofar, which is a trumpet. Those are interchangeable in, Old Te- or in New Testament and Old Testament times. And a shout that he was coming. While the father's head was turned, the groom would steal the bride. And the wedding party would then uh, go back to the groom's house to meet the guests. They'd have the ceremony for the, the actually the, the, the wedding ceremony itself. And there's some stuff there that just for lack of time, I'm not going to go into, um, but it was a special time. Now, we're going to look at, uh, when we get to John chapter 3, 
the, some of the closing words of John the Baptist before he leaves the narrative altogether here in the Gospel of John. He says something really interesting in, in John 3.29. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John the Baptist was speaking the language of a Jewish wedding. He was speaking the language of being one of the groomsmen, a friend of the bridegroom. And when he sees the bride, his joy is fulfilled. His joy is full because he knows what's happening. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and those, those, uh, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds uh, to meet the Lord in the air. So with the trumpet, with the sound of the trumpet, the groom will come for his bride. That's a reference to the rapture of the church. Uh, I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe it makes the most sense. Uh, in looking at the different positions that people have taken, as far as the scripture goes, if you have a different belief, that's fine. Um, just don't take the mark. Uh, seriously, I mean, uh, if you believe in a post-trib rapture, then you know, there are people that do that. And that's one of those questions that when people come and ask me, as a pastor, I've learned over the years, uh, if people want to come up and argue pre-mid or post, I just ask them what position they'd like for me to argue from kind of pulls their teeth um, because there are different positions and there's support for those positions but the one the, the, the tribulation is for Israel it's, it's called the time of Jacob's, Jacob's trouble it's not for the church we're out of here and we're enjoying seven years with the groom before he comes back and we come back with him whole different story Revelation 19 talks about the end of the age and the beginning of the new, of the millennium after the seven years of trouble on earth. People take different positions as to where the marriage supper of the lamb falls in that he, it talks about the marriage supper of the lamb. We'll talk about that in a, in a minute. But people have different positions on that. Again, if your position is different than what I state, that's fine. Um, and you'll find that and I think a good principle for us to follow, guys, is unless they are cardinal doctrines, and, and I say that sincerely, not because of like Catholic cardinals, but unless they are central doctrines to orthodox, the word orthodox is a Latin term, it means straight glory, to orthodox historic Christianity, unless those are being dealt with, people have all kinds of ideas. And, and, and churches, denominations have split over what are minor doctrinal issues. There's lots of room for interpretation on these things, but not on the major ones. Not on, was Jesus born of a virgin? Not on, were we saved by grace through faith? Not on justification? Not on sanctification? Not on a lot of the, the central things that we believe? Because if you change those, you change who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So in those doctrines, they're not up for grabs. I'll argue them. But in the others, yeah, whatever you want. No, it's not whatever you want. It's what I think the preponderance of the scripture says. And I believe the preponderance is for a pre-tribulation rapture. That's the point. 
The nine here is the Kaddush, the blessing. The shared cup of wine is called the Simcha, symbolic of joy at a Jewish wedding. Now, wine in the scripture overall is symbolic of joy in the right context. Now, I'm not talking about in the Proverbs where it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. That's not a symbol of joy. <laughs> That's a warning. <laughs> and we'll talk about it next week because we're going to do a thorough examination of this whole passage in, in verse 1 through 11, perhaps even move forward from there. But uh, just we'll talk about the place of wine in the, in the, the things that the scripture says. Uh, and, and again, there are a lot of people that would tie up heavy loads for men. I don't believe that. But I also believe that all things are permissible for me, but not all things are expedient. Not all things are profitable. And also believe that there are times where I could really stumble somebody uh, if I were to use Christian liberty in a whimsical way, in, a, in a, a, a way that is not employing my brain. Anyway, with that, there's this, this shared cup. There's, here, we're back now talking to, about the wine at the wedding here, see? And there's a shared cup of wine called the Simcha. Uh, uh, it was symbolic of joy at a Jewish wedding. And when the bride drinks from the cup after the bridegroom, the bridegroom would drink first and the bride would drink after that, it's a sign that she is joyfully accepting the covenant that he had signed with the Kitabah. Matthew 26, verses 27 through 29, it says, Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. We read this this morning. And gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, I always used to think that that was because he was going to finish the Passover. But I really don't believe the scripture indicates that. There's nothing that says he's doing the Passover later on. In Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, um, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, as the sound of many thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Note, it doesn't say his bride. It says his wife. It's a done deal. It's a done deal at this point. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is yet to come. And folks, we are at the end of the age. I am absolutely convinced. Absolutely convinced. And it's a time where Jesus, when he gave the parable of the virgins, to have our wicks trimmed. Wedding language. To be waiting for the groom. Wedding language. The New Testament is, is filled with this language of the first century wedding and betrothal. It's filled. In Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Luke writes, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Did you ever think about, uh, this is a, a reference, it's a clear reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At that supper, 
Jesus will gird himself. He will wrap a towel around or uh, an apron around his waist and he will come and serve us. That's amazing. That's the, that's, that's, that's the, the Lord that we serve. What a powerful truth. You see, the old wine of Israel had run out. We'll talk about it next week. And Jesus is now beginning to usher in a new work. This is just days after his baptism. Back to the wedding at Cana. It's a new covenant within which the new wine of the grace of God would culminate when his hour would come. When he said to to Mary, to his mother, my hour has not yet come, he could look down and for the next three and a half years, he would be accomplishing these things. He would, be, he, he would be demonstrating. He would be forming signs, these attesting miracles. He would be doing things and saying things that would tie together with the church becoming his bride. And when he went to the cross, he paid the price for his bride. He paid the price to take us as his bride. And we see in just this this smattering of scriptures, this, this, this collection of scriptures, there's a lot more language in the Bible, I just don't have time this morning, that Jesus could look down and say, my hour has not yet come. There's a lot of work to do here before my hour has come. And when his hour would come, that would be when he would take the cup of suffering, when he would go to the cross and he would go to his father's house and prepare a place for you for me. It's amazing. I just, as I looked at this passage, I had to stop, guys. I had to stop and just examine these things more closely and dig into the the ancient customs of the day. And I checked them and rechecked them with different sources, and they were the same. And I thought, well, I think this is probably some pretty good stuff. Uh, Yeah, these are customs I'm talking about, and we're also, and we're mixing them with the Word of God, and I want to be careful not to spiritualize, but I don't believe this is spiritualizing at all to say that Jesus understood the language of the Jewish wedding and the Jewish betrothal, and he used it constantly. The Apostle Paul used it as well, because it's that quality of relationship that he looks for. I'm closing here. Why marriage? And I've listed seven loving attributes to a good, healthy marriage. But as I mentioned these, don't just connect them to the marriage. I told Stacy while we were on a vacation, we're laying on the beach, suffering greatly. Um, <laughs> I said, you know, honey, we have a good marriage. I said, I want to have an excellent marriage. And she just grabbed my hand and looked at me with those big blue eyes and said, me too, honey. And I just thought, you know, there's always room for us to, to, to grow closer. We pray that God would strengthen the bond of love between us. Why do you think, looking at this language, why do you think that marriage is under such attack? It's the language of heaven, guys. It, it's, it's in Ephesians 5, and we'll look at that again next week, where the Apostle Paul lays out this whole reflection, the, 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 the relationship that Jesus has with his church should be reflected in the relationship that we have with one another in marriage. And why do you think it's under such attack? Why do you think that Jesus said, my hour's not yet come, and when it did come, he sealed it. 
I was thinking about it too, and I'll just toss this out. I, I haven't really, I was just thinking about it this morning. When the guys came to him and they said, well, you know, if a guy's married and, 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 and he dies, this is, and his brother takes on his wife, because that's how their tradition was, and then he dies, and then his brother, another brother dies, and he says, well, so what's going to happen in heaven? And they're just, they were always trying to trip Jesus up with these nonsensical things. And he said, you know, there'll ne neither be marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. And I, and I always thought, well, well are it going to be like Barbie and Ken? You know, I, it's like, it's, well, I'm sorry, it's just weird. But it's like, what's the point of all that? And again, as I looked at this, I started thinking, we're off the market. And of course, the, the whole thing, as far as a physical relationship, doesn't come into play because that's for us to be fruitful and multiply and procreate and all that jazz. But when he's talking about marriage, he's talking about these qualities here. I listed just seven that I came up with. Uh, I was actually on the plane last night praying about this, thinking about it. And, 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 and the first one is commitment. There is no greater commitment in this life than the commitment we have in marriage. There's no great, greater commitment than to have Jesus' commitment to take us as his bride. The second is trust. There is an intimate trust in a marriage. And I could spend time on all these, but we're out of time. The third is faithfulness. And again, we're not talking about physical faithfulness between us and the Lord, but we're talking about moral integrity, faithfulness, because that's what that means, that, that Jesus is faithful, even when we're not. The fourth is security. I mentioned to somebody not long ago, we were talking about the, the, the subject of eternal security. That's one of those areas where, what side do you want me to argue from? Are we secure eternally or can we lose our salvation? I really don't think God's an Indian giver, but I also think that people can live in such a way that there's a real questionable thing. And I love what I heard Pastor Chuck Smith say one time. Uh, somebody asked him, I was at a conference and they asked him about eternal security. And he just simply said, don't ask me about yours. As for me, I'm secure eternally. And I love that. It's just a great answer. I mean, it's just, and it, because it's true. He says, work out your own salvation. And so as we do that, we can be secure. If I'm living my life in such a manner that I'm plugged into the source and I know I'm walking and I'm doing what I'm doing and all that, I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, I've had people come to my office before. Well, God told me I could. Da, 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 and it's like, oh, boy, you know, are, is that person even saved? Why live your life on a question mark? That's the point. The fifth is friendship. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. Friends. I sometimes daydream. Uh, this, this, this is free. <laughs> I sometimes daydream and think, what is it going to be like that first moment when I look directly into Jesus' eyes in person? When I no longer have to walk by faith because he's there and I'm there. What will it be like? What will I see? I'll bet I see love like I never could possibly imagine. I bet I see this connection and I bet you do too. 
I bet, I mean, it, it says, you know, we see in the mirror dimly in 1 Corinthians 13 or in the glass dimly, but then face to face, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Face to face with the Lord. What'll that be like? I don't think it'll be long. The sixth is intimacy. And again, not physical intimacy. That's done. But the intimacy of a relationship that is so close, that is so trusting, that is so perfected. And that's the, the relationship. All of these things are things that he desires in the relationship he has with us. Sure, then. But there are things that he desires in his relationship with us now. I'll read them again real quickly. Commitment. Trust. Faithfulness, moral integrity, security, friendship, and intimacy. Those are the things that he initiates with us. What a glorious relationship. As we wait for our bridegroom, as we the bride, the church, the called out ones. Just glorious truths. Hear from the Gospel of John. I believe that's the answer to woman what have I to do with you here? My hour has not yet come. These are a picture. This, this collection of passages is a picture of what the transaction looks like and what it is when his hour did come. And we now, again, I've mentioned before, you need to have a worldview of the body of Christ. That if you look at it as, oh, this is all this Bible stuff, think again. You got Genesis and Revelation. We've looked from Genesis to Revelation this morning and your life is tucked into those pages and my life is too. And our lives are tucked into the pages between the betrothal and the wedding and we wait, we wait for the, the, the finishing of the transaction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this brief look at the ancient traditions that Jesus would speak of as he taught his people. And Lord, that you've preserved them for us to look at and to receive instruction from as well. Not just instruction, but really understanding on, on what it is that this, this marriage, this wedding looks like, this betrothal that we're involved in now. Thank you, Father, for these precious truths from your word and for giving us a, a bit of understanding from history and culture of those ancient customs. Pray, Father, that as we leave here this morning, that we would be mindful of just how important marriage is to you. And Lord, that we could just reflect you to a lost and messed up, screwed up, dying world. And pray, Father, that you'd get the glory and the honor and the play, praise for the things you're doing in our lives as we yield to you in the working of your Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves afresh to you. Give us a good week, Father. Bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at this morning according to your will. And in Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.